According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John chapter 12, once again, as always, our growth comes through the scriptures. John chapter 12. Laptop seems to be working today, unlike the difficulties last week, but... I did, in the meantime, obtain an upgrade, and so uh, I'm not sure if it'll happen before Sunday or not, but at some point, uh, I'll be making the upgrade to Windows 7 and uh, some other things. So, Total Rosa, I want to be so far ahead of my studies that even if the whole thing just died for two weeks, I'd be, uh, I'd be okay, you know, so. Anyway. John chapter 12, verses 20 through 50. It's a long section here. And we are dealing with, uh, let's just skip on down to verse 30. As the voice uh, came out of heaven, he said, Father, glorify your name. And a voice came out of heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel had spoken to him. It's kind of like, Paul on the Damascus Road, uh, there was a bright light. It was bright enough to blind him, but it didn't blind his companions. They, uh, they, they, they could see. Uh, they, they couldn't see the Lord. They couldn't see the light. They couldn't hear the voice. They just heard uh, you know, thunder. They didn't know what was going on, but they didn't lose their sight, so they were able to take him into Damascus. Uh, something similar here. They just think, well, is that thunder? Or maybe that's an angel. Uh, There is scripture precedent for angels sounding like the sound of thunder when they speak. So uh, they're basically clueless. The good news is, is that this answer comes and allows Jesus to give an encouraging message to this clueless crowd. The father answered Jesus's prayer with an encouraging affirmation that Jesus could use to edify the confused crowd. The biggest issue, of course, this crowd needs to get saved. And um, they're very religious, many of them. They're uh, fervent in their following of uh, Pharisaical Judaism. Um, I have in the past called it Rabbinic Judaism. That's not entirely fair. The Rabbinic system didn't develop until it came out of Pharisaic Judaism. Um, They need to get saved. And so we're going to see that, uh, that the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. And he says in verse 35, uh, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light. That's why I conclude that even the most religious of them uh, still required faith in Christ. Believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. And uh, we'll talk about that as well. How many of these folks, um, they, they needed to believe in the light because he is now present among them. Uh, but we're going to open up with prayer here. But as we proceed through this text, we're going to ask ourselves the question, what, what uh, was then the opportunity for those that believed in the coming Messiah uh, when they came face to face with him to either believe or reject? You understand. And that's uh, a little bit awkward because we're, talking, we're not talking about a second salvation, but we are talking about a, uh, a, a necessity for faith 
win face to face with the Savior. And, and only this generation in the history of the world ever had to deal with that. Uh, so we'll, uh, we'll expand on that just a little bit here today. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit and prepared to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege that we have to assemble together. We do uh, ask for your blessing upon our time. And in particular, Father, there's a couple of aspects we're going to touch upon that may, uh, um, may cause us to think in terms we have not thought before. So we ask for your blessing, as always, to guide us into the truth. We thank you that the study of, of uh, the Word of God does not depend on how smart we are to figure things out, but on your faithfulness to, uh, to lead us into all things, even the deep things of God. So I thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is the midst of point two then as Jesus responds to his soul trouble. He said, my, my trouble, my soul is troubled to the point of death. Uh, well, that comes up later. Verse 27, now my soul has become troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. So we need to learn how to acknowledge our weaknesses and prayerfully surrender them to the Father so that we don't dwell on them, we don't surrender to them, and they don't end up controlling us and consuming us. Now, under this uh, point B there, with the Father's answer to Jesus, we had some subpoints: the previous glorification and the promised glorification, which is a pattern that we ourselves enjoy. And then finally, the observing crowd thought that the Father's voice was either thunder or an angel. They don't know. It's, it's amazing. They, they, they know so much, and yet they know so little. You know, and is that not the world we live in? You know, where the experts in every realm are actually rather clueless in uh, in a lot of different applications. I want to move on today to some new ground, which is point C in the outline. It still is dealing with um, the prayer focus and how the Father answered it. But when we move on to verses 30 through 32, Jesus answered and said, "This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sake." All right, for your sakes. And he's now going to be able to explain what it was the Father had to say and, and actually uh, what some of this future glory is about and how this audience has a chance to become partakers of that. Now, judgment is upon this world. Now, the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. All right, so as we look at point C then in our outline, this is C under main point two if you're following the overall notes. The message from the Father and through the Son communicated the eternal victory over sin. Communicated the eternal victory over sin. I'm sorry, over sin and death and the universal drawing unto life. I'll say this again, it's kind of long and wordy. But this was the message from the Father through the Son communicating to this crowd here and we can communicate it to, to anyone that we care to uh, evangelize in this lost and dying world. The message from the Father and through the Son communicated the eternal victory over sin and death and the universal drawing unto life. It is a universal drawing unto life. All right. 
This is verses 30 through 32. We could even include verse 33 on this because we have the explanation that it's related to his death, his crucifixion. And, and I believe it's related to not only crucifixion, but the victory over death where he was ascended to the Father. Because it's not just being lifted up. That's the cross. But being lifted up from the earth. And I think that has more to do with the ascension than the actual crucifixion. All right. Um, there's plenty of times where he says, and I, if I be lifted up, or as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And the, the expression lifted up does have, uh, contained in that expression, can, has the, the cross in view. You have the idea of crucifixion, you're lifted up, you're placed on a cross. Um, but this is unique in that this passage actually adds the phrase, from the earth. Okay. And so I think there's actually something more significant than simply the crucifixion. I think it includes the crucifixion and the, uh, the ascension into glory. So let's uh, spell out some issues under this then. First of all, the Father is satisfied. The Father is satisfied. Point, point one, the Father's satisfaction regarding the Son's work on the cross is also a judgment regarding Satan. It is also a judgment regarding Satan. Understand the cross was the tactical victory in the angelic conflict. The Father's satisfaction regarding the work on the cross is also a judgment regarding Satan. We have the reference here in John 12:30. We have as well John 16:11, and then a correlating passage in 1 John, 1 John 3:8. As we put these together, along with of course Colossians and some other verses we'll see here shortly. I think we'll start to gain a glimpse of exactly how glorious our Lord's victory was on the cross and how uh, the Father was well pleased, not only in the, uh, in the idea of, of the wrath being poured out and, and that His justice was satisfied, that the demands of righteousness had been met. That's, that's in bearing our, our sins. That's in bearing our wrath. But there was more to it than that. And disarming the rulers and authorities was a big part of it. Um, the, the humility of humbling yourself even to the point of death was a part of it because this is what answered satan's rebellion satan's rebellion was self-exaltation jesus victory was self-denial and so it's important that i think we relate these things all together so you'll notice he says in verse 31 now at this time not prior to this but at this time judgment is upon this world now at this time, see, because of his obedience, because of the Father's plan, the Father's promise, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Right? I think the, um, it's, it's coming into very vivid focus, which we spoke of when the, when the Gentiles were brought, when the Greeks were brought to him. And he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. For three and a half years, he's been saying, his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. Now, all of a sudden, this delegation of Greeks arrive. And Jesus says, all right, this is the final detail in the mystery of godliness, the final detail in, in the, the prophetic uh, things fulfilled here. He says, now the hour has come. It's Tuesday of the Passion Week. He will be on the cross within 72 hours of, of the events that we're studying here today. So now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. If Jesus had not completed three years of victorious ministry, he would not be at this stage right here where the, the tactical victory is being achieved. So the urgency there, or the sense of the, the emphasis there on the expression now, used twice 
in verse 31. Uh, flip over now to chapter 16. Just a couple of pages brings you into chapter 16. And um, in the message that he's giving to his disciples in the upper room, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16 are all these, uh, you notice all these pages are red in your red letter Bibles, okay? This is all his message, his upper room discourse. You get on into chapter 17, he gives us high priestly prayer. But this is the night in which he's betrayed. This is in the upper room with his disciples. And um, we're going to do a lot of work on this because this is not church age yet, but this is the opening of, of church age doctrine as he starts to prepare his disciples for how they're going to function after he's gone. All right. And so we can, now that we're in the church age, we can look back with hindsight and understand chapters 13 through 17 for what they are. And so in 1611, we understand the uh, conviction of the Holy Spirit here. He says in verse 5, I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The advantage that the church age has is the permanent dwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. The fact that the Holy Spirit has been sent, the helper has been sent. He indwells each one of us. And it's an advantage that Israel never had. Um, we say, well, isn't it a disadvantage that we don't have our Lord anymore? Yes, we do have him. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. So we haven't lost him when, when he sent the Holy Spirit. We actually have them both now. And so it's to our advantage. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, the world, of course, is the cosmos, the moral creation of humanity. It actually includes angels and humanity, but uh, notice now. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, why? Because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now, he's speaking of it as already completed. Okay? In his mind, he's gone to the cross. But it will happen at the cross. You understand? When he says, now, the ruler of this world will be judged in chapter 12. And he says, the ruler of this world has been judged in chapter 16. What's the difference? The difference is, in chapter 16, he's talking already after the cross, after the Holy Spirit comes. He's talking in a future sense that pertains to us today in the church. Okay? So from the standpoint of where he is in John 12, it hasn't happened yet. But by the time the Holy Spirit is sent and we're in the church age, it will have been completed. And we know that the, the, the defeat here, the disarming, the judgment of the ruler of this world actually takes place on the cross itself. 1 John 3.8. Another passage with relationship to this. 1 John 3.8. First John 3, verse 7 says, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Well, when did he do that? Did he do that in Galilee? Did he do that in Samaria? Did he do that in Perea? Did he do that in Jerusalem? Did he do that when he was... Uh, healing people or flipping over tables or when did he do that? He did that on the cross, which we understand. And we'll show you some of the other 
passages here shortly, like when he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, when he triumphed over them, destroying the works of the devil. And if you think about it, what was the promise made in Genesis chapter 3? The, the works of the devil, including the fall of man, right? The temptation of Adam and Eve, the subjugation of humanity to, uh, to sin. And uh, what did Jesus Christ do? But he crushed the serpent's head. He provided the means of redemption for the human race. So you could view even redemption itself as destroying the works of the devil. All right. So the father's satisfaction regarding the son's work on the cross is also a judgment regarding Satan. Secondly, sub point two, the ascension of Jesus Christ from the earth has tremendous significance in the angelic conflict. The ascension of Jesus Christ from the earth. Now, I know some people teach this that, well, it's, it's only lifted up, only references the cross, does not reference the ascension. I think the, the term from the earth actually is significant. I don't think it's meaningless. Plenty of other places where he talks about lifted up, lifted up. As the serpent was lifted up, so also must the Son of Man. I understand that. Lifted up is an idiom for the cross. It's an idiom for crucifixion. But when, it, when you have the phrase from the earth added to lifted up, I think it speaks of both the cross and the ascension, the victorious ascension. So we have John 12:32a. We also have Colossians 1:20 and Colossians 2:15. Colossians 1:20 and Colossians 2:15. This is Paul's development of it over in Colossians. Very Christological book. It's the Christological equivalent of Ephesians, which is paterological. Colossians is Christological. Recognizing in Colossians 1, we have the celebrity of Jesus Christ being described here. In verse uh, 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And we've had discussions related to that as far as how it pertains to his humanity and the establishment of his humanity prior to the, the uh, foundation of the earth. Notice in verse 16, For by him all things were created. And pay close attention to the definition of all things. All things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth. That's the contrast. Uh, he created earthly things. He created heavenly things. Visible and invisible. Again, there's the contrast. The visible realm of creation is our realm, the physical realm. The invisible realm of creation is the spirit realm. Again, that's all things. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. The purpose of this universe is centered on Jesus Christ. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Jesus Christ. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You know, I wish I could get some environmentalists to believe that verse. Actually, I just wish I could get some environmentalists to believe God created this place. You know, so many of them dedicated their lives to saving the environment and uh, don't recognize, of course, that the, the creator who made it is perfectly capable of preserving it. In fact, he's also dedicated to destroying it here at a future point of time. So, um, you know, this world is slated for destruction. Verse 18, he is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Now, I'm headed for verse 20. Verse 19 says, It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him. 
All right, so please understand, the Father put a plan in motion, and, the, and everything is centered in Christ. It is through him and for him. Okay, all things were made through him and for him. Not only were things made through him, but things were also reconciled through him. Because after they were made through him, they fell. And so the agent Christ who created them will also be the agent Christ who will reconcile the fallen realms of creation. So through him, through Christ, to reconcile all things to himself. Now remember what we said earlier. What was all things? In the heavens and on the earth, right? What was all things? Visible and invisible, right? So there is a reconciliation value that pertains, that's related to the cross, that has a, an application in the angelic realm. We don't understand it. We don't know all there is to know on it because that's not ours to know. This is our human Bible with our human message in terms of human reconciliation. That we do know. That we understand how the, the last Adam uh, made the provision for the, the, to, to remedy the issues related to the first Adam. We don't know what the precise application is in the angelic realm. We simply know that the angelic realm is included. They're included in the all things. And in case you missed it, or in case you weren't carrying that train of thought all the way from 16 to 20, it gets repeated in verse 20. All things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So the earthly and heavenly, uh, the scope of, of both realms is once again restated. So that there is a peace provision, there is a reconciliation accomplished. It was the blood of the cross that made it happen. And uh, we have a pretty comprehensive understanding of how that applies in the earthly realm for the sons of Adam in, uh, you know, the lost estate in Adam that can become now the uh, redeemed estate in Christ. But what, uh, how does this pertain to Gabriel and Michael and the other elect angels? Or how does this relate to the defeat and disarmament and rejection of the fallen angels? Um, we'll simply have to content ourselves to understand the fringes we understand and leave the, uh, the rest of it for uh, a later time. Colossians 2.15, though, next chapter over, we get more description of what happened here on the cross and after. I want you to see um, it's in Christ that we've been made complete, Colossians 2.10. He's the head over all, rule and authority. Now notice, um, verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised up with him through faith. So that being raised up is critical. That's our newness in life. And that's what he emphasizes when he emphasizes being lifted up from the earth. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt. This is important, consisting of decrees against us, all of the decrees against us, our entire indictment, our entire uh, debt certificate. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. 
That's why not one thing, not one sin, nothing will be brought up at the judgment seat. The Father wants nothing else to do with it. He doesn't ever want to remember it again. He nailed it to His Son. It has, the wrath has been poured out. Now, not only having nailed it to the cross, you understand that there was more, there was, there was actual judicial function here related to these certificates, related to this, uh, this is all in a, in, a, in a courtroom setting. Notice verse 15, when he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities. When did that happen? Again, the context, nailing these certificates to the cross. Okay, nailing these certificates to the cross. Understand what arms the adversary what, what weapons does he use against the unbeliever? What weapons does he use against the carnal believer who rearms him unnecessarily? Okay. You know, when you're, when you're walking in the light with your armor on, you're, you're face to face with an unarmed foe, and it's powerful. I mean, you can, you can have victory every time. But when you go carnal and you take your armor off, and then you hand the adversary all the weaponry he needs, and it's, it's tragic. It's tragic that you arm him when he's already been disarmed. And you arm him with the... Um, uh, something comparable here to the certificate of debt. You arm him with the, uh, the guilt of your sins, the shame of certain things. Understand the power the adversary has over you when you're in darkness, when you're in your carnality. Understand the, this was something Robert and I were, were discussing in our, in our visit on Monday. The power of condemnation okay, that we should not be afraid of. Because there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. And when you're walking in the light, when you're walking in the transparency of the Christian walk, as a sinner saved by grace, walking in grace, the adversary's got no power over you. But when you're walking in darkness and you're doing the shameful things, then he's got power over you. Because when you're in the darkness, you don't want those things exposed. You love the darkness and you hate the light. And so... You find in, the, in your sin patterns with, the, 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 say, you're unequally yoked and you've got some other satanic minions that are doing these things right there with you and so forth, they've got power over you, see, because now you're afraid. Oh, what if, what if uh, my boss finds out or what if my wife finds out or what if my church finds out or what if it becomes known in the community or what if and then you've got shame and you've got sorrow and you've got regrets you've got all the of of, uh, of everything that that is associated with the defilements of sin so we're going to teach and related to second uh, corinthians 7 1 the defilements of flesh and spirit so um when he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, what else did he do? He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And I believe that public display was not only the proclamation to the spirits in, in prison, you know, the, in the, when, when Christ descended to Sheol, but then when he led captivity captive and he emptied out Abraham's bosom and he carried the, the uh, Old Testament saints into glory... What a, what a triumphal parade. You know, far better than any Caesar that ever marched through the streets of Rome with the, the prisoners in front of him. Jesus marches out of Sheol with every redeemed Old Testament saint, takes him to glory. You better believe Satan is disarmed. What a, what a parade that would have been, or it was. Hopefully it's on video. I want to see that when we get there. So, there is so much that's going on with the cross. And as we get closer to the, the, the event itself, we'll, we'll spend some time dealing, detailing some of these things out. 
So back to John 12 then. The adversary is defeated. His works are destroyed. His weaponry is removed. He's disarmed. He's judged. He's absolutely judged. And then we have Jesus and his promise of a universal drawing. A universal drawing, which is point three. The drawing of the Son. John twelve thirty two b And the drawing of the Father. John six forty four. And if you want to add to that, and the convicting of the Holy Spirit, which we just saw from John sixteen eleven. But the drawing of the Son and the drawing of the Father must both be understood as components of the redemption process. As components of the redemption process. The Father draws and the Son draws. It's the same verb. It's helkuo both times. It's helkuo both times. The Holy Spirit doesn't draw. The Holy Spirit convicts. And I think that works in tandem with the Father drawing and the Son drawing. The verb is helkuo, number 1670. So, we're going to do a couple of things here. I don't want you to... If you, if you can, I don't, I don't know how your pages are laid out there, but stay in John 12... 32 if it's possible and then flip back to john 6 44 if that's possible and i can do it just like that ah so just like that i just curl little pages over and now i'm good and let's look at these side by side okay i think calvinists have an issue with this John 6.44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The verb is helkuo. It's the same verb we have in our study today. And I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. But who does the Father draw? Does verse 44 say who draws? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Understand the doctrine of that verse, the teaching of that verse says that in order to come to Christ, it is required for the Father to draw that person. If the Father does not draw that person, that person does not come to Christ. Right? But what does it say in John 12:32? I will draw, and I will draw all men to myself. I will draw all men to myself. And so we need to put these two together and understand that the Father shows the Son what He Himself is doing and the Son does likewise. So what the Son is doing is what He has observed the Father doing. Drawing. And then we want to ask ourselves, is He drawing all men or is He only drawing the elect? You know, the Calvinists say, of course, He only draws the elect. Careful now. Is that what this text says? John 6.44 doesn't say that He only draws the elect. And John 12:32 says that Christ draws all men. He draws all men. Now Calvinists hate that because well they say you're teaching universalism. That means everybody gets saved. No, it doesn't mean everybody gets saved. Look again at John 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Raise who up on the last day? The one who comes to Christ. The one who comes to Christ. So the um, and and I think this is just simply a an issue where um, people come to conclusions because they 
they, they, they work their way too quickly through a verse and they work their way too quickly through an idea. And, and to them, they work it out of their mind where it, where it makes sense because it agrees with their theology. But they've gone through it so quickly that they don't understand the flaw in their logic. Okay? The fallacy they've just actually fallen into. Um, because you cannot take a, uh, a, a statement, uh, a conditional statement or, or a propositional statement and, and reverse it. You, you can't reverse it just on its own sake unless, unless there's other reasons why you could. So, for example, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's the statement. But you can't flip it around and, 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 requ- and require the opposite. It doesn't work that way. Do we know from this verse that the Father only draws the elect? From this verse, do we know that? Okay. Um, does this verse say that that um, if you turn around the other direction, that the Father only draws the ones that are saved? No. But those that are saved have been drawn from the Father, right? Okay. It'd be like if I said, um, everybody in this room, no, that wouldn't be another way to say it. Let me see. <laughs> I had a good example on this yesterday. I said, oh, I'm going to use that tomorrow. It's going to work out great. And I broke my toe in the shower and everything's been rotten ever since. This whole day has been crummy. Um, I'm telling you, it hurts. My left foot hurts. Uh, Okay, the, the, the body that the Father draws, you can't come to Christ unless the Father draws, okay? But that's not the same as saying that everybody the Father draws comes to Christ. That's what turns it around, okay? Unless you had another passage somewhere that, that tells you that. Uh, everybody that comes to Christ has been drawn by the Father. That you can say because that's what this text says. Everybody that comes to Christ has been drawn by the Father. But you can't turn it around and say, everybody the Father draws comes to Christ. Because this passage doesn't say that. And you would require additional passages or additional verses or additional information. Okay? And we don't have that. Not here, not in John 12. So... um, What's another example? Anyone have one if you turn it around? Everybody here today, um, oh, this is just horrible. I'm having a senior moment. I'm not even old enough. The, uh, okay, but Bob, give me some logic. You had logic, right? It's just, you cannot, it's called, okay, the fallacy is called affirming the consequent, all right? And it's invalid everywhere you try it. You can't flip it around and say, okay, if it, if it, if it rained last night, the, the ground would be wet this morning, right? Well, then you say, okay, well, the ground's wet this morning. It must have rained last night. Well, wait a minute, maybe there's another explanation. Maybe the sprinklers were going or maybe something else took place. Okay, so you can't turn things around and demand that they also be true. Make sense? All right. 
thank you. I'm hoping something makes sense because it's, I had a better explanation and it had to do people in this room too. I was going to say, and I, I needed a, a mixture of men and women to do it, but what was I going to say? Anyway, doesn't matter. Now, who cares? If the Holy Spirit wanted it taught, it would have come to my thinking. Um, and so here's the thing. It's an assumption people make. It's an assumption that the Father's drawing is what forces them to be saved. And that's not what that text says. The text says that the Father's drawing is necessary so that they can come to Christ. Notice again in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But the, the difference between can come and must come or have to come, that's a world of difference, right? And so the idea of potential, the, the ability that's provided to, if you can come to Christ, is a possibility because the Father has drawn Likewise, now with the sun drawing, and if I'm if I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. So now the sun is drawing, even as the Father draws. And in John 12, it's very clearly all men, all mankind, are being drawn. All mankind are being drawn. So now, who can come to Christ? By definition, everyone who's drawn can. Now, will they? No, because they're not being forced. And that's the difference. Now, the uses of Helkuah are interesting. Not only here, John 6.44 and John 12.32. It'll come up two more times in John. John 18 and John 21. And then Luke uses a, a, a form of it or, or application of it in Acts 16.19. And so we can just look at those here also. Um, John 18.10. So you get the idea on this. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it. Helkuo. He brought it out of its sheath. He drew it. He pulled it. And that's what the Father does. He pulls us. The Son does. He pulls us. There's a pulling influence. And of course, a sword doesn't have free will. It doesn't try to uh, resist the drawing. It, uh, it just does what it does. Having a sword, he drew it and struck the high priest's slave, cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. I don't think Peter is much of a swordsman. Um, 21.6, John 21.6. Children, uh, you don't have any fish, do you? And they said, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and they were not able to helkuo it. They were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. They were not able to draw, to haul, to, pe to pull in. It was too heavy to pull. And that's when uh, the Lord figured out, hey, or no, John figured out, hey, this is the Lord. And uh, they, they caught on. They're down to verse 16. No, I'm sorry, verse 11. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153 and although there, there were so many, the net was not torn. So he drew the net to land. He pulled the net to land. So this pulling, this dragging, this is what, um, this is what we see in the imagery of Helkuo. The last use then is Acts 
But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, and they hokuoed them. They dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion. All right. So you understand, this is now what the Calvinist does when he makes the drawing of the father and the drawing of the son. They make it a mandatory thing, like drawing fish, like drawing swords, like drawing criminals into the marketplace. They're just, they say that uh, you have no choice in the matter. The father just draws you and there you are. Okay. They say that based on the other uses, but is that fair to say that in light of what the, the actual passages do say? See, is there a difference between drawing a sword and the father drawing an unbeliever to the cross? Well, ask yourself, what's the context? Okay. In the context of being arrested in Ephesus, uh, they didn't have any option. They were just simply yanked and put on trial. But is that what the father's doing when he draws the unbeliever? Or is the father making a gracious invitation and call? Is the father saying, come? And is the drawing simply a grace provision that allows the sinner to come? See, is this a divine provision that, that serves to counteract the depravity of the, of the fall? You understand. So that there is now an ability to come. Again, I will put you back in focus in John 6 where it says, can come. Able to come provides the ability to come. The drawing allows the uh, provides for the ability to come. And so there it is. I think I think if you can understand that, if you understand that it's the it's the provision of that ability, it's the grace that allows to come. See, that's what overcomes the fact that our, our depravity doesn't want to come. There is none who seeks after God, no, not one. Our, the darkness of our fallen nature doesn't want to come, but the drawing overcomes that and allows us to have a volitional choice when the gospel offer is presented. And that way you're not violating sovereignty and you're not violating volition. You're fair to both sides of the, of the, uh, of the activity in salvation. All right. Otherwise, then uh, it's all just a, an exercise in divine compulsion, isn't it? And if it's all just an exercise in divine compulsion, then God's not pleased with any of it, right? Because God uh, loves the cheerful giver and takes no pleasure in the compulsion. All right. So this drawing becomes important. Point uh, D. Let's move on to something else this crowd can't figure out. The crowd knew about an eternal Christ, but was deficient in their Son of Man understanding. The crowd knew about an eternal Christ, but was deficient in their Son of Man understanding. Who is this son of man? They want to know. Who is this son of man? Who are you talking about? Who is this son of man? As if this son of man that Jesus was describing was some different son of man than the one they knew about. Who is this son of man? So I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And by this he was saying to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. So the crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Who is this Son of Man? Now, when you read their statement in verse 34, how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? And you look up above there, when did... Um, 
Did he talk about, he said, I, if I am lifted up from the earth, did he use Son of Man? Well, he did way up in verse 23. There it is. Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay, so he did call himself Son of Man. And then they say, well, he's supposed to stay forever. We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? It makes no sense to them. They want the eternal king. They want the one that's going to abide forever, the eternal son of David, who's going to reign forever. All right, that's, that's a pretty good king to have, right? A king who cannot die, okay? You know, a king who can multiply loaves and fishes and feed everybody, that's a pretty good king, right? Who is the son of man? So they're confused. They're confused. And what were their expectations? Um, and understand, they had the teaching... They embraced the parts they liked and they minimized the parts they didn't like. And if you do that long enough, what happens? The things that get minimized get neglected. The things that get neglected get forgotten. The things that are forgotten practically don't even exist anymore, right? Because they're so neglected and they're so forgotten. And so the idea of a suffering Savior, it's in the Bible. It's in their prophets. It's in their law. But those aren't the parts that get taught. Those aren't the parts that get emphasized. So let's look at it. The um, messianic expectations emphasized the glory and minimized, even denied the suffering. Even denied the suffering. You know, I can imagine the shock. If, uh, if, if a believer has been, maybe they got saved and got caught up in a, in a, in, a, in a church somewhere that had a prosperity emphasis, right? And, uh, and, and they get kind of their initial childhood in the faith is spent under a, a prosperity theology approach. And, uh, you know, God wants everybody to be wealthy and God wants everybody to be, you know, healthy and, 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 and all this other stuff. And then, and so that's their, that's their whole framework of theology. That's their whole perspective as it relates to the Christian way of life. And then... Who knows? They're visiting family for the holidays and whatever, and they, they visit a strange church they've never been to before, and the, 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 the goofy pastor gets up there and starts talking about angelic conflict. Starts talking about picking up your cross and following Jesus. Starts talking about undeserved suffering. Starts teaching. And you can imagine the, just the culture shock, right? Just the, you know, what, what, what Bible is he preaching from? Okay? And then he shows a few verses, and you start looking about Oh, yeah, if we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. You start seeing some things and go, that is in my Bible. Why have I never seen that before? Okay. Well, because there's a certain agenda at work among the um, communicators of, of your background, and, and they have a vested interest in only presenting uh, one particular facet of things that, that furthers their, their, uh, their, their agenda. And the other things that don't contribute towards that, of course, they get brushed aside or neglected or ignored or, and, and so forth. And that's entirely where Israel is in this day and age where we're dealing with with the, with the coming of the Lord. They, every time he spoke, the people were shocked because they hadn't heard stuff like that before. He spoke like, with authority. He spoke. He was teaching whole counsel. And how come their scribes and Pharisees weren't teaching like that? Okay. And so I can imagine... The idea of him going to the cross is coming right out of the text. He's quoting the scriptures. And yet uh, you wonder, have they ever seen those verses before? Right? 
I told you the story of how Arnold Fruchtenbaum got saved. It was out of his own Bible, but he didn't believe it. It was Isaiah chapter 53. And now he's got a wonderful Bible study. If you ever read the, the uh, I quoted it even in this study, Messianic Bible Studies, Lesson 11, on the Suffering Messiah of Isaiah 53 by Arnold Fruchtenbaum. And um, that was the passage that was used to, uh, for him getting saved. And the fellow that was giving him all those verses and giving him all that truth about the suffering Messiah, um, Arnold was, was in complete denial and said, oh, no, 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 that's not true. You're, you're reading that from your Bible. That's not in my Bible. And, uh, and the guy said, oh, no, no, this is from your Bible. No, it's not. And he wrote down some verses, says, go look here, go look here, go look here. Come back next week. And a week later, he comes back and he had looked them all up and he said, you're right, that's from my Bible. How come I never get taught that? How come my rabbis don't know anything about that? What's going on? And uh, anyway, it's interesting. So uh, he's supposed to live forever. How are you saying he's going to die? Okay. And then the thing about God's promise, of course, they're both true. Yes, he's going to die. But, and yes, he's going to reign forever. Right? Because he's not going to stay dead. <laughs> Scripture says that too. It's impossible for him to be held in the bonds of death. He's going to rise on the third day. And when he comes the second time, he's going to reign. But see, the idea of him coming twice, they weren't so sure on that. They wondered maybe there's two Christs that are coming. A, a, a suffering Christ and a reigning Christ, which you might imagine. In fact, I'll give that to you next, on the next point. Point two. Considerations were given as to different messiahs fulfilling the suffering passages. Considerations were given as to the different as to different messiahs fulfilling the suffering passages. Now, the idea of a Christ, a, a, a messiah, an anointed one, does not mean that there can only be one. There could be others. Prophets were anointed ones. Priests were anointed ones. Kings were anointed ones. Uh, there's at least one passage where we have an anointed angel in the scriptures. Satan was called the anointed cherub who covers. Um, Christ, uh, the, the prophets talk about different servants as being anointed ones. And so they're waiting for an anointed one to come to be their king. But this, the, the law also speaks of an anointed one who's going to come and suffer. And so in the different rabbinic decisions and the different traditions, the, uh, the various Targum um, commentaries of the Old Testament. Uh, considerations were given as to different messiahs fulfilling the suffering passages. And in fact, the suffering messiah was termed Mashiach ben Yosef, Messiah, son of Joseph. They gave that title to the suffering anointed one. They felt that the pattern of Joseph was the pattern for the suffering anointed one. That he was hated by his brothers, he was abused, he was imprisoned, he did everything right and then suffered wrong for it. And so they gave this title, Mashiach ben Yosef, they gave as the title for their suffering Messiah. But then the glorious reigning Messiah, uh, which they felt was going to be a second coming or a second Messiah, uh, a second glorious Messiah was termed Mashiach ben David, Messiah son of David. And it basically became the conclusion that, okay, there are going to be two messiahs, special messiahs that are going to be sent to Israel by, by Yahweh. They even went so far as to conclude that um, the, messiah, the suffering messiah who dies uh, will actually be resurrected by the second messiah who comes to reign forever. That he will resurrect the first messiah and then I guess the two of them will hang out. 
I don't know. <laughs> okay, a little fuzzy on that. But these were their traditions. Okay, this is what would come about uh, orally as the uh, Mishnah was being uh, accumulated. It'll find written form by the time of the Talmudic era, which is you know fifth, sixth century. 7th century A.D., and then by the time you get into the Middle Ages, then it becomes the dominant view to the point where even uh, Messiah ben Yosef is, is forgotten and ignored. Okay, And now they're only looking for the one reigning Messiah, and um, the idea of the suffering Messiah is allegorized out of existence. So it's kind of an interesting thing. If you want more on that, I would recommend Arnold Fruchtenbaum and his... Uh, Messianic Bible Studies. It's number 11 in the uh, Messianic Bible Studies. The Suffering uh, Messiah of Isaiah 53. And yet, is this not the, um, the uh, debate that John the Baptist is pondering in Matthew chapter 11? In Matthew chapter 11. And... Uh, John was imprisoned, heard the works of Christ, and he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Okay. And I hate the way this gets you know, taught as if somehow John the Baptist is just kind of a weak sister, some kind of crybaby, or he's succumbing to the pressure of, of being imprisoned, and now he's starting to lose his faith and he's starting to doubt. I don't think he's doubting at all. I think he just has the legitimate question, which all the rabbis had. I think he's trying to reconcile the suffering passages with the reigning passages and, and asking, is this right? Are you Messiah ben Yosef? And should we be looking out for Messiah ben David? Is this the correct interpretation, that there is a suffering Messiah to be followed by a, a reigning victorious Messiah? Are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus encourages him with scriptures. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And this ought to be enough of an explanation related to the Messiah that he understands there's only one. Okay, There's only one, and Jesus is fulfilling uh, what they think are two different Messiahs, and Jesus is fulfilling them both. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Isn't that interesting? I, to me, God is just so amazing, and, and, and there's no coincidence with God, but you know, here's God, and what does he do? He uses Isaiah as his text to demonstrate that, no, there aren't two Christs, there's only one Christ, and, and Jesus is the Christ, is fulfilling all of these things, okay? and there's only one Christ, and he's using Isaiah as the text to do that. Isn't that, isn't that hilarious? I think it's hilarious because in our generation, the, the, the skeptics and the liberals and the, and the Bible haters and the God haters, they will look at Isaiah and say, well, there wasn't really even one, one Isaiah. There was really three Isaiahs. There was a, a, a Deutero-Isaiah and a Trito-Isaiah, and it was just kind of the, combined together into a, you know, a, a, a compilation text, blah, blah, blah. And uh, in that, I, th- I think it's hilarious that uh, the liberals of our day and age will, will postulate a divided Isaiah, and Christ uses a united Isaiah to teach the doctrine of a united Christ. There's only one Christ. There's not two Christs. Okay? But this was uh, John the Baptist's question in Matthew 11. And this is what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 1. That uh, the prophets of old made careful searches and inquiries. Seeking to determine. 
what person or time. Okay. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come. See, this isn't just the, you say, well, it was the rabbinic scholars and they were sloppy. No, no, no. They weren't sloppy. They were brilliant. And, and it wasn't just the rabbinic scholars. It was prophets. Uh, spirit-filled prophets who had the privilege of inquiring of the Lord and getting their questions answered. And they made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Okay? Sufferings and glories, sufferings and glories. And what they wanted to know is, was it a person or was it a time that was going to resolve that dilemma? Okay? Are there two persons or two times? What person or time? We know the answer, right? The answer is time. The answer is it was two times. One person coming two times. Okay? But could it have been two persons coming each once? Could it have been? See, if we don't know our, don't have advantage of our hindsight, right? Conceivably, you know, there could have been a suffering Messiah. There could have been a reigning Messiah. Conceivably. But that's not how the Father's plan worked out. So here's this crowd now in John 12. And they're, uh, they're confused because... Um, he's talking about the ruler of this world being judged. He's talking about being lifted up and drawing all men to himself. Speaking of his own death. And they're saying, wait a minute. Messiah is supposed to stay forever. What are you talking about dying? Who is the son of man? Who is the son of man? And next week we'll, we'll spend some time in Daniel and Ezekiel. We're going to give you some son of man information. And we're going to show you the expectations of an eternal king. And yet we're going to show you the necessity for a, a dying king. So... Um, I just don't have time today. It's already 10.58. But they have this question. He's going to be faithful. He's going to answer their questions. He's going to answer their questions and still tell them, you've got to believe. While the light is still among you, you've got to believe. Now, I've got two minutes left. The last thing I'll say here in John 12. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Well, I want to give you some thoughts between now and then. If uh, if this was a verse that was, if this was Paul speaking in the church age about believing in Christ to become sons of light, uh, there would be much less debate. We would we would have no questions that he's in the church age. He's giving a gospel to unbelievers, and if they believe in Christ, then they're going to be saved. They're going to become sons of light. But we're not in the church age. We're not talking about Paul. We're talking about Jesus, and we're talking about an Old Testament audience, and. How, where, when, why, or what conditions is sons of light used in the Old Testament? How do sons of light relate to Jewish believers in the Old Testament? Or does it? Ever? Anywhere? Okay. And is it possible that there's something else being addressed here beyond just simply receiving eternal life, becoming regenerated, becoming born again? Is it, is it conceivable that there are Old Testament believers who were saved in their childhood looking forward to a coming Messiah and then later in their life came face to face with the one they had believed in years ago and not accepting that that's who he was? Okay? So I want you to chew on that. Because what would then be the consequence what would then be the consequence? They come face to face with Jesus, but now by the time this happens, though, 
See, when they were children, they were, they were humble. And they were hungry and they were positive and their, 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 their parents were grounding them in the Scriptures and they were learning about Abraham and Moses and they were learning about David and they were learning about the coming Messiah and they were placing their faith. What does Paul tell Timothy? From childhood you've known the sacred Scriptures that lead you to salvation. And so here's this, this young, humble, teachable, positive child who gets saved looking forward to the coming Christ. And then... He grows up and he goes to college, goes to rabbinical school. He goes to, he sits at the feet of Gamaliel and he becomes prideful. In fact, he becomes twice as much a son of hell, a son of Gehenna as his rabbinic teacher. And he has, in order for him to thrive in his Pharisee school, he has to out-Pharisee his peers. And the top of the class is the most pharisaical, right? And so now as an adult, now he has all this sophisticated uh, understanding of different things. Now he's got all this pride working against him. Now he's got all these things saturated with a religion that Jesus didn't even recognize. Okay. Can you see how likely it is under those conditions then that a Pharisee can come face to face with Jesus of Nazareth and hate him? even though he was saved as a child, right? All right, so consider that. Consider that the, uh, the warnings, the admonitions to repent, the, the ministry of the Baptist to turn the hearts back to the Lord again, uh, what's going to happen at Second Advent, the whole thing to remove pride. Much of that is not targeted towards unbelievers getting saved. A lot of that is targeted towards prideful believers that are caught up in the legalism of, of their religion, that they've got to flush all that and, and start walking in grace to become sons of light. While you have the light, believe in the light. And so I think there's much more than just simply the evangelism of unbelievers. I think there's the restoration of believers to a true discipleship status of abiding in the Word of God. So we'll, uh, we'll speak more on that next week. Father, thank you for your truth, for your faithfulness. Father, uh, for the privilege we have to study to show ourselves approved, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.